this morning and you don't have a Bible, we do want you to be able to follow along and not only hear the truth, but also to uh, follow it with your eyes. So there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. On Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, the whole Bible is very, very rich, but we are in a very, very rich section of the Bible here uh, concerning Jesus. John chapter 14, and we'll pick things up in verse 7 through verse 11. Jesus is speaking, and he said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Well, yes, I, I would hope it would be. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for every revelation that you have given us of Jesus in your word. We love every little snapshot, Lord, every glimpse, every long gaze that you give us. And we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, who is present in this room, that you would take this revelation of Jesus and make it personal to us and make it a part, Lord, of our thinking, our feeling, our doing, our living, Lord. Open your scriptures up to us, we ask, as we continue our worship of you and the study of them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of scripture, Jesus communicates three things that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, that he is the single great revelation of the Father. And number two, he also, that he is also equal with the Father. And then number three, what we should do as a result of those two great truths. I think among the greatest questions that anybody who is a thinking person in this world is going to grapple with in life are questions like the following. The question, is there a God? And then, if there is a God, what is he like? What does he think? What does he feel? What does he think of me? What does he think of you? How can I come to know him? Those are the most important questions that we'll ask and we'll answer in life. And Jesus answers all of those questions for us this morning in this passage. We remember that Jesus is now with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. Everything he's revealing about himself on this final night through these chapters 13 through 17 are all absolutely dominated by a cross that awaits him in the morning. And Jesus has just told the disciples that he is leaving, 
that following his death, his burial and his resurrection, that he would be leaving this world and returning to the father, returning to the heaven that he had come into the world from. And Jesus then declared in verse four, he said, where I go, you know, in the way, you know, and as we've seen, Thomas wasn't understanding what Jesus was saying at all in that statement. And so he respectfully asked him, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way to which Jesus replied in verse six? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. And then concerning God, the father, Jesus then went on to say in verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. In other words, Jesus was declaring to the disciples that they knew him. They knew Christ. They had been with him for three and a half years. They had seen all of the miracles. They had seen all of his deeds. They had heard all of his teaching, both private and public, for the three and a half years. And so they knew Christ. And so Jesus was saying, you know me and therefore, you know, the father. And so we learn here, not only is Jesus the only way to come to the father, but he further declares that he is the only means or the only way by which we can come to know what God, the father is truly like. Now, Philip's response in verse eight is is he's listening to Jesus talking about heaven, talking about uh, God, the father. And he gets very, very excited as, as we might expect a person to get excited. And so he asks of Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. And it's a good question. It's a very, very sincere question that he asks. He longs to know God. And and so he wants to see him. He's the kind of man who thinks that the best way to come to know the father, to know God, is by sight. So he wants to see the father as plainly as he can see Jesus. But in verses 9 through 11, Jesus informed Philip and the other disciples and us as well concerning the single best way by which we might know to come to know the truth concerning God, the father, the way that gives us a greater revelation of the Father than even sight could provide for us. Jesus said in verses 9 and 10, He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's one of the most astonishing declarations of Jesus concerning himself in all of the Bible. It is right up there with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so he declares that he who has seen me has seen the father, Philip, there in verse nine. In other words, if we want to know what God, the father is like. What he thinks, what he would do in any given situation, what he would say in any given situation, what is his attitude toward mankind as a whole? What is his attitude toward us individually as people? All we need to do is to look at Jesus and we'll know exactly what the father is like, because both God, the father and God, the son were united in every word that Jesus spoke. He never spoke a word independent of the father. 
Both the Father and the Son were united in every deed, every miracle, every accomplishment of Jesus. Of, of Jesus. He never did anything independent of the involvement of the Father. You think about how priceless that knowledge is. To be able to sit in a room like this, to open up this book that's without peer in human history, and to have one of the great questions of our lives to be answered. What is God like? And to be told that if we want to know what God the Father is like, all we have to do is to look at Jesus. What that delivers us from is all guessing. Not one of us has to live not a one more day of our lives guessing about who God is and what God is like. It delivers us from wondering what he might be like. All that entire gigantic question is solved for us for the rest of our lives when we can say, if I want to know what God the Father is like, all I have to do is read through the Gospels and study the life of Jesus, and I'll know exactly what he is like. And I think that sometimes we can overlook how valuable this is. I think even not only for people that don't know Christ yet, but even for Christians. Even among Christians, there's this idea that there is this huge gulf between God the Father and Jesus. This idea that there is the God of the Old Testament and then there is Jesus. And the God of the Old Testament is this scary kind of God. And Jesus is really nice because he carries lambs on his shoulders. And you can always trust someone who does that kind of thing. Or that, the, or that God the Father is always kind of in a foul mood. We've always got him at least slightly upset. And uh, he, he's always at least a little bit agitated with each one of us. But the purpose of Jesus in all of this is to keep the Father calm one day at a time so he doesn't destroy us. Now, you tell me, maybe not to that exaggerated degree, but there is the, in the minds of even maybe a lot of us as Christians in this room today, this thinking that the Father and the Son are two entirely different personalities. Jesus said, no, it's not true at all. If we've seen him, then we've seen the Father. The Father was united with Jesus in every word that he ever spoke. Again, public and private. Every teaching that he taught, every rebuke, every encouragement, every warning, every bit of instruction about heaven, about hell, about salvation, about the love of God, about the grace of God, about holiness. To listen to Jesus teach was to hear the heart of the Father as well. Even the enemies of Jesus listening to his teaching when the religious leaders of the day and they had a religious police force sent them off to arrest Jesus because of his teaching. They came back empty handed and the religious leaders said, well, why haven't you brought him back? And they said, no man ever taught like that man. They were dumbfounded as they listened to him teach. They were hearing both the son and the father. The Father was united with Jesus in every work, every action, every deed, every miracle that he performed. When Jesus looked at the 5,000 who had now gone days without eating, 
because they were so hungry for the word that he was teaching. And he knew that many of them would not have the strength physically to return to the villages that they had traveled a great distance from to even come into contact with him and to listen to the teaching. And when he took the five loaves and the two fishes and he multiplied them to glut the multitude, the father was as concerned for the people as Jesus was. When he calmed the sea, when he healed the sick, when he cleansed the lepers, when he raised the dead and seeking and saving the lost, on and on. Every time we see Jesus in the Gospels here, we are seeing the heart and the mind of the Father as well. Jesus is saying, he who has seen me healing the sick and feeding the hungry has seen the Father doing these things. He who is See, heard me teach the way of everlasting life, has heard the Father teaching the same things. He who has seen me seeking and saving the lost has watched the Father do the same thing. Philip, you want to know the Father by seeing him in your mind. That's the best way that you could get to know him, but it isn't. You think that there can't be Something better than that. But the Father has chosen to be revealed in a far superior way. He has chosen to reveal himself through his son. Because you can see somebody, which is what Philip is asking for, and not know anything about him for having seen them. I can see people at Costco. I can see people walking in my neighborhood. I can see people all over the place. And seeing them doesn't tell me anything more than that they exist. It doesn't tell me what they think, how they feel, what their perspectives are. So seeing is a very shallow means of knowing. And God hasn't left us with a shallow means of knowing concerning himself. Just seeing someone doesn't mean that we know him at all. The Father has chosen for us to get to know him in a way that will really allow us to know him. And that's by watching and hearing Jesus. And so Jesus communicates to us here that he is not only the way to the father, but that the father can only be known through him, through the son. Now, second, we notice in verse 10 that Jesus declares his equality with the Father. He said, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And Jesus is declaring himself to be more than a revealer of the Father. He is declaring himself to be equal with the Father, that he is God, that he is divine. That he is all God, all man, all at the same time. And is coming into the world. That he is the son of God, but he is also God the son. It doesn't mean that the father and Jesus are the same person. They're not the same person. But they're each divine. They are each God. The Bible teaches that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. But that there's only one God. This is known as the Trinity or the Triunity of God, one God manifested in three persons, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people think that this is a, an invention of the New Testament. But the fact of the matter is that the foundation for it is laid 
all the way back in the Old Testament and in fact all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament. For example, turn to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one with me. And I want you to see a verse with me as we uh, bring this out a little bit. Now, I'm going to demand a little something of you this morning, the next few minutes in in teaching this. But there's a reason for it. And uh, we'll discover that at the end of the message. Notice in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, that God said. As he's created man now and creating man on the sixth day of his creation, he said, let us and you notice the plural us make man in our plural image according to our plural likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so Jesus, I mean, God speaks here in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. And he's having a conversation with someone else here or some someones. And we see the hour, the us and the hour. And when we see this us, our, our, we ask ourselves, who in the world is God talking to? Now, most Jewish literature that I've read on this particular verse explains that God is speaking of us and our in that he is talking to the angels. So they declare that God is creating man in the image of himself and the angels. And the reason that most Jewish literature interprets it that way is because they don't want to see any support in the Old Testament for the deity of Jesus or the deity of the Holy Spirit. That is any evidence for the Trinity of God or the triunity of God. Uh, One group goes so far as to say this. One possible reason for the use of the plural on the part of God in verse 26 and, and, and that is to manifest his humility. God addresses himself to the angels and says to them, let us make man in our image. It is not that he invites their help, but as a matter of modesty and courtesy, God associates them with the creation of man. This teaches us that a great man should act humbly and consult with those lower than him. That's nonsense. That's just pure nonsense, because that is an explanation that accuses God of being deceptive. It accuses God of false humility where he doesn't want to hurt the feelings of the angels. He doesn't want them feeling left out or inferior to him, but they are inferior to him. They're infinitely inferior to God. He can't be speaking to angels Because in the very next verse, verse 27, and they never go on to verse 27. God further declares his word says, and so God created man in his own image, not in the image of angels. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Man was not created in the image of God and in the image of angels, but in the image of God. 
And so what we have in verse 26 is a conversation that is occurring within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all the way back in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Well, someone might declare, well, what about the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6? Doesn't it plainly declare that there's only one God? And let me read that to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So the Bible, doesn't it declare that there is one God? And it does declare that there's one God. And no Bible-believing Christian would ever declare that there's more than one God. We believe that the Bible teaches that there's one God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, is that the word one is the Hebrew word echad. And the word echad means one, but it is a word that speaks of a compound unity. There is another Hebrew word, yachid, that speaks of an absolute oneness, an indivisible oneness. God does not use that word in describing uh, God in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He's very fluent in Hebrew. He knows what word to use. He deliberately uses a, the word echad, which speaks of a compound unity, if he had used the word yachid, there would be no talk of a trinity or a triunity. It would silence the subject altogether. We would have no right to even begin to believe that, that God is a triune being. And I don't know what we would do with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, if he used uh, uh, yachid instead of echad in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's interesting here that he uses that word for one concerning himself, and he carefully chose the word for one, which com communicates a compound unity. Even the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The name that is used for God in Genesis 1.1 is the name Elohim. When you in the Hebrew, when you talk about the name of God in singular, it, his name is El. If you want to make something plural in the Hebrew, you add I am to it. And so here you have a description. Uh, he, he declares himself to be Elohim, which is a plural name for God. It speaks of the fact that God is one and yet he is Plural. At the very beginning of the Bible, the very first verse of the Bible, God carefully chose the word for God that signifies plurality. Now, if I haven't killed you yet with all of this, let me summarize. In Genesis 1-1, God describes himself as a plural one. In Genesis verses, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God records a conversation for us that involves multiple persons within the Godhead. 
And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when he gives the great Shema to the Jews to reinforce the fact that he is one, he is careful to use a word that speaks of a compound unity. This is not a New Testament invention. This is something that goes through the entirety of the Old Testament as well. All the way back from Genesis 1-1, God started to lay a foundation for what he knew would continue to develop in the revelation of his word that there is only one God, but that he is triune, made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit spoke of the fact that God would send mankind a Messiah, an anointed one, a Savior, to save us from our sin, to get us out of the mess that each one of us have been delivered into because of Adam and Eve's sin, their fall in the Garden of, of Eden. And the Holy Spirit declared that when this Messiah came, that he would be the Son of God, that is, that he would be divine. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 740 years before Jesus was even born, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet and said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, speaking of the fact that Messiah would be the Son of God, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It was declared concerning the Messiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. It's one of the names that heaven has for Jesus in giving him as a gift to this world. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and other prophecies like them are told to us of Jesus in the New Testament. Here in verse 9, Jesus saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a clear declaration of the fact that he is equal with God, that he is divine. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, wrote, who being of Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory, that is the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, that is the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Apostle Paul declares the same thing in writing to the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he declared of Jesus, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is confirming the same thing that Jesus is speaking about in our text. Jesus declared of himself in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Only God can say that. Alpha and Omega, the first and uh, last letters of the Greek alphabet, that's a name for God in the Bible. If you go to Costco after the service and somebody comes up to you and says, and you say, hi, my name is Rick, and they say, I, my name is Alpha and Omega. Run to another aisle. <laughs> the guy's declaring that he's God. But Jesus plainly declared concerning himself. And then I love in Hebrews chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, the whole chapter is written to solve the error of what even Jehovah Witnesses believe today and that Jesus isn't God, but that he is simply a great angel. And Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of the superiority in every way of Jesus to angels. You cannot put Jesus in the angel category. can't be done. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the Father declares Jesus to be God twice in the passage. Sometimes the Jehovah Witnesses will come to my door, and I don't always have time to get into something lengthy with them, but sometimes I do. It just depends on how the Saturday's going. And, and I really do enjoy talking with them. And, and one of the things that I'll do is I'll take them to Hebrews chapter 1 after I've politely listened to what they have to say. And I take them to Hebrews chapter 1 and I say, if I could show you in the Bible where the Father calls Jesus God, would you believe that Jesus is God and not merely an angel? They say the Bible doesn't say that. So that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you if I could show you in the Bible where the father declares that Jesus is God, would you believe it? And typically they will say, well, that's not in the Bible. I said, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you is if I could show you in the Bible where the father calls the son God calls Jesus God, would you believe it? And then typically at that point, usually the third time, they'll say, yes, I would have to believe it, but it isn't there. And you go to Hebrews chapter 1, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, um, let's see what I've got here, uh, verse 8, but it says, but to the Son, the Father says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And typically they'll say something like this. Yes, but the judges of Israel in the Old Testament were also called Elohim or God. So that doesn't prove anything. So the whole chapter is building this point. All right, let's go down to verse 10. I'll show them in Hebrews chapter 1. And there the father declares and you, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, Jehovah, it is the name of God in the Bible. And here is the Father saying to Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. I have never talked with a Jehovah Witness in my entire life who was not silenced by that passage. I have been told that that passage in Hebrews chapter 1 is so damaging to their denial of Jesus' deity and their belief that he is merely an angel 
that when they are schooled to answer every single question that a Christian might pose to them on the doorstep, that they are not instructed concerning that verse because even the instructors don't want them to be confused by the clarity of the passage. You are almost always talking to a Jehovah Witness who is hearing that passage for the very first time. And that's why you have to pray for them when they leave your doorstep, that the word of God will have that needed work of revelation in their heart. And we could go on and on and on talking about the verses in the New Testament that speak of Jesus' deity. Now, some people, they struggle with the deity of Jesus. They, they want to accept him as a great man, but they won't accept his deity. And, and for the life of me, I can't understand it. Because I ask myself, what more could God do than to tell us hundreds of years, and in some cases thousands of years, through biblical prophecy, ahead of time, prior to Jesus' coming, that the Messiah would be divine, so that we wouldn't be surprised by Jesus' claim of being God, much less use as an excuse to be unbelieving toward him. Do you realize that if Jesus came into the world and he said what most people want him to say, and that is, I'm not God and I'm just a great example and I'm just a slob like all of you and uh, trying to work my way through all of this. And but I'm a pretty good moral example and a great teacher of, of morals and all. If Jesus came into the world and denied being divine, we would have to reject him as the promised Messiah. Because God said when he comes into the world, he will be fully God and fully man. So that we would recognize him when he came. And so that's why Jesus came declaring himself honestly, openly for who he was. Because that is a match for the description that was given to him in the Old Testament scriptures. His, his declaration of the fact that he is God is not only is it not a basis for not believing in him, it is a, a profound testimony to the fact that he ought to be believed in as the Savior of the world. Well, someone might say, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand how they can be one God and there can be three persons. Doesn't one plus one plus one equal three? Uh, 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 uh. Rule number one related to the Trinity. You never use addition. You use multiplication. It's one times one times one equals one. Somebody says that doesn't help me at all. This is a gift I have. Thank you very much. People keep coming here week after week to see if I'll break out of this. I don't understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. I don't get that. And my response to that is always join the club. Join the crowd. Even the great Apostle Paul wrote concerning this. The Trinity and the deity of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and he said, and without controversy. In other words, you won't get any argument from me on this. Without controversy, great is the mystery 
of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, being all God and all man, all at the same time. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up in glory. You see, just because we don't understand something fully doesn't mean that it isn't true. It just means that I can't understand it fully. There are a lot of truths in life that I don't understand fully. It certainly doesn't mean just because I can't understand something fully, certainly doesn't mean that that particular truth isn't true in heaven or it isn't true in eternity. One of the things that we always have to remember is that any time you have the finite us in relationship with the infinite God, then you're going to have to get used to mystery in the relationship. Because I don't care how brilliant any of us are, we can only track with God so far on any subject. You take a man or a woman who has a Ph.D. in anything, and they begin to discuss that particular subject with God, and where that Ph.D. shuts down, smoke starts to come out of her ears, she can't go one inch further related to that subject or that truth, and that truth goes on infinitely beyond her understanding, and God understands it all the way out into eternity. And if mankind is going to have a relationship with a God like that, we're just going to have to accept that we can only track with him on, on issues a, a certain distance. And after that, it becomes mystery. It has to become mystery. You've heard the old saying that a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. And there's a lot of truth in that. In fact, it's very, very true. Because if I can understand God and everything about him, that makes him smaller than my mind. If he's smaller than my mind, he is smaller than me. And if he's smaller than me, why in the world would I bother worshiping him? And so if we're going to have a God who is big enough to worship, he's going to have to be bigger than us. And he's going to have to be bigger than our understanding. And that's the God of the Bible. That's the God. That's the Father. That's the Son. And that's the Holy Spirit. So why is this deity of Christ so important? In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. He said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. And then here it is. For if you do not believe that I am. And I am is the name of God in the Bible. And Jesus describes it to himself. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So someone asked, isn't it enough that I believe Jesus to be a good person, even a great person, a great teacher, a great example? And the answer is no, because if that is all that he was, then our sin problem is still unresolved. Because one who is merely a good person, a great teacher, a great example, is not qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine 
that he is also sinless. And because he is sinless, he is uniquely qualified in human history to provide us with salvation. It is his sinlessness that qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be, as Peter put it, the lamb without spot and without blemish. I'll read it to you. Hebrew, uh, First Peter, chapter one, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why was his blood precious? As a lamb without spot and without blemish. You take away Jesus' deity and you're left with a savior that can't save anyone. This is why it is so important to resist the tendency in our own individual heart, if it's there, and the tendency of the world to redefine Jesus according to its own terms. And the first thing that they want to do is jettison the fact that he is divine. You remove that, and now you don't have a Savior that can save anyone. You dumb Jesus down. You make him less than he is, and you're producing terrible ramifications and consequences into the human condition. It's best to leave him alone for who and what he is. He is absolutely a perfect match for man's need. For a sinner's need. He is a sinner's savior. Just as he is. If we mar him. We redefine him. We knock him down a peg or two. We don't realize we've thrown away the only means by which any of us can get into heaven. Now it's important. That we understand Jesus to be who he claims to be. And that is God the Son. And the Son of God. Well, finally, in verse 11, just in case we don't know what to do with these two great facts, and I love the fact that Jesus is clear because he knows he's dealing with people like me. So, just in case we don't know what to do with these two great facts that Jesus reveals the Father and that Jesus is equal with the Father. Jesus declares to us what those two facts are to do in each of our lives. Because in verse 11, Jesus calls all of us then, in light of these great truths, to put our faith in him as our Savior on the basis of his life, on the basis of his teaching. You see, you must have some explanation for the supernaturalness of Jesus' life. I will either accept his explanation for his life or I have to come up with my own. But you have to have some explanation for the supernaturalness of his life or you have never truly grappled with his life or with his teaching. And the explanation that Jesus gives is that they testify to the truthfulness of his claims concerning himself on behalf of God the Father. 
from the vantage point of heaven, from the vantage point of God, wonderfully and perfectly separated from the insanity of this world and the pride of our own heart. There's only one logical conclusion for a person to come to concerning the life and the teaching of Jesus, and that is to believe in him. To put our faith in him as the God, the God, the son, as, as the son of God and as being uniquely qualified to be the savior of mankind. And that's what Jesus calls you to do this morning. If you have never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, this scene is completely dominated by a cross that he is going to hang on the very next day to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus comes along and says, read my life. Read my teaching. And as you read about my life and you read about all of my teaching, see if the only logical conclusion isn't to put your faith in me as your personal Savior. And so it is. So it is. How, I, how do I do that if you don't know the Lord this morning? By just coming to him in a room like this and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life and quite conscious of it. I believe that you're so holy and heaven is so holy that but even one sin would separate me from that place and from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you love me so much. You sent your son to die on the cross for my sins as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin. And God, I want to put my trust in that Savior today as I repent of my sin and my self-will. And when a person says, God, I trust in Jesus, I give you my life, at that moment God's Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're born again by the Holy Spirit. And it's a free gift. And it will happen all over the world today. I would venture to guess in every country in the whole wide world, people are going to respond to that invitation to trust in Jesus as their Savior. But you can't make a decision for anybody else and nobody else can make the decision for you. You have to make that decision for yourself. Don't be caught ultimately on that day of judgment on the outside. You need to make the choice for Christ. The only logical conclusion in the light of his life and his teaching, only thing that you can logically do with him is to make him Savior and Lord. That's how heaven looks at me, looks at you, looks at this world, and looks at the Savior that it has sent. 
This whole thing, sometimes people think about a study like this morning. And I'm fully prepared when we start to talk about the deity of Christ and the triunity of God, especially on a Sunday morning, that I'm going to lose a few people along the way. But it hasn't stopped me in 25 years, so what can I say? But somebody else may sit here and say, why do you bother? Pastor, why are you up there talking like that? Don't you know it's just a bunch of blah, blah, blah going on and on about this stuff that half this room doesn't care about? I I wouldn't believe that assessment. But sometimes people can think that. And you know what this is really not about is head knowledge. I love to worship God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, all of my soul and all of my strength. I love what God does with my mind and what his truth does with my mind. But it's not just intellectual knowledge. It is what that knowledge does in my heart and in your heart. And then our spirit and then our personal relationship with God. We teach doctrine for the sake of the worship leaders, for the sake of Dennis For the sake of Mike, for the sake of all the other worship leaders, because it is only as we understand God and as we understand Jesus for who and what they are as described by heaven. That we then have a God who provokes worship within us and a desire and a need to sing praises to him. It is not just. My best friend who died on that cross 2,000 years ago, though Jesus is my best friend. And I have many good friends, beginning with my wife. It was God Almighty, all God, all man, all at the same time, the Son of God and God the Son who died on the cross for my sins who spoke of his deity on this particular night, knowing that he, knowing all of this about himself, which Philip was just trying to fill in some of the blanks, even the disciples didn't realize it fully concerning Jesus. That's who died and bled on that cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I love knowing him as my friend. But I love knowing him as divine Son of God as well. They both produce something wonderful within me as I consider him and the cross and his sacrifice made for us. This is very multifaceted. Every jot, every tittle, every line, every precept, every verse, every paragraph, every chapter in this book is intended to impact the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength. And so it does. We thank the Lord for this revelation of our Savior this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray.